I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 388 for July 9th, 2012. I'm in New Orleans still, where yesterday I had a really incredible experience, two experiences actually, both of them revolving around Uncle Lionel Batiste, a drummer for the Treme Brass Band, who passed away yesterday at the age of 80. I don't know a ton about the New Orleans tradition for celebrating the passing uh, of a revered elder, but yesterday I was very fortunate to experience two different second lines celebrating the life of Uncle Lionel, one at Kermit Ruffin's place in the Treme and another down Frenchman Street late at night. I wrote about both of those experiences in yesterday's tour diary, which is called Didn't He Ramble? And you'll find it at jasoncrane.org. There are also lots of photos there and links to two entire albums of photos that I took at those events. I was very moved uh, to be a part of it and and very glad that, although obviously it's sad when someone passes, uh, I was very glad to see the way that people are remembered here in New Orleans. I'm actually heading out of town tomorrow. Uh, heading briefly back to Alabama and then to New York City for almost a week and then to Pennsylvania for about a month. I originally had intended to stay in New Orleans for all of July and then spend August off the road before resuming the tour in September. But as it turns out, my kids have some travel plans of their own, so uh, they're going to be gone for two weeks in August and therefore to really get a, a full month with them, which I would like to do very much. I'm actually going to curtail this part of my New Orleans experience and then come back here when the tour starts again uh, in the fall, although I, this may end up being the final stop on that leg of the tour. I haven't quite figured that out yet. But in any case, I'll be off the road from uh, the middle of July through the middle of August, and then probably, I'm not 100% sure this is going to happen yet, but probably heading to the Detroit Jazz Festival at the end of August and the beginning of September and restarting the tour there. But I'll let you know for sure. The second half of the tour, of course, which probably will actually be longer, so it's it's probably the second two-thirds or three-quarters of the tour, will cover the rest of the United States and and a fair amount of Canada if all goes well. <laughs> That's a lot of territory. Uh, I think it's going to make this part of the tour, which was about, uh, well, I'm about a 1,000 miles, 1,100 miles from where I started, but obviously I've traveled significantly more than that distance. Uh, but anyway, I think it'll make this part of the tour seem fairly easy by comparison, geographically speaking. Thank you to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the Jazz Session logo and Rob Grundle for the Jazz or Bust logo. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. You can read my daily diaries from the tour at jasoncrane.org, and there are lots of photos there too. And they really do cover things beyond jazz. 
they cover my experiences uh, and really both my uh, external experiences and the places I am and some of the internal experiences I'm having, you know, dealing with what it's like to be on tour and be away from home for so long. My guest today is a saxophonist and jazz presenter. His name is Brad Lindy, and I met him when I was in D.C. I met him, I think, even on maybe my first day there when I went to see saxophonist Brian Settles play. Brian Settles was on the show a week or two ago. And Brad Lindy uh, met me at the club where I was going to see Brian play, and we ended up hanging out, having a great conversation, and uh, spending some more time together over the course of my time in D.C., we're going to hear some music from Brad, and then we'll hear my conversation with him about both his own musical career and about presenting music in the nation's capital. My guest is saxophonist, educator, music presenter, Brad Lindy. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I met you just the other day, and uh, I have was told before I came here that you were one of the people I needed to find. And it seems that the more I look into what it is that you're doing, you, you have insinuated yourself everywhere into the Washington, D.C. scene. <laughs> and I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about establishing yourself in a place and how you got from... Uh, you know, I'm in the area for school too, and now I have kind of a life and a career in DC. I know that's not an easy story. But. Uh, no, that's that's cool. Um, I came here to go to graduate school at the University of Maryland from North Carolina, and uh, part of the reason that I chose uh, the University of Maryland was the location in DC that was close to home, and it was also close to New York, and it had a vibrant music scene. And the other reason that I chose the University of Maryland was I got a full assistantship to program a performing arts series called Take Five at the Clarice Smith Performing Arts Center. And it was a Tuesday night um, series that was free and open to the public, and it featured dance, poetry, theater, music. And uh, the point of it was to... Uh, give the audience a, the uh, glimpse behind the creative process that the artists were doing. It was a kind of an informal, you know, kind of st a studio or uh, 
workspace for people to bring in new things and developing uh, projects. And I really uh, liked that idea of being able to kind of reveal uh, the artist's intent behind what they do. And so uh, while I was at Maryland, I just uh, continued to book that and then uh, doing some teaching. And I thought when I got out of it, I'd like to do it on my own. So uh, a lot of what I do now is just uh, my desire to keep that, uh, that kind of mission alive and, uh, and do it in my own programming. Will you talk about the Atlas space? Sure. Uh, The Atlas kind of fell into my lap. Uh, You know, in the back of my mind, I wanted to program for a a center, but I didn't really know how to go about doing it. So I was doing some gigs at the Atlas uh, during the Intersections Festival that they have every year. And I asked about renting the space for some of my projects. And uh, Sam Sweet, who's a very uh, visionary director there, he said, well... why don't you program for us? We want to start our own programming. So the uh, I got to begin in June, and I booked the whole season by September. And uh, we were going to perform uh, present music on uh, the national and local level with emerging artists and legendary artists, and kind of uh, piggybacking on what I was doing was pairing uh, legendary artists with new projects with local musicians. It's, uh, easier to finance, but it also gives the younger generation a chance to, you know, experience what it's like to play music with the guys that created the music for us. Who are some of those folks who've been through? Well, we started, uh, with Lee Konitz. He was here with Dan Tepfer and, uh, we continued with Teddy Charles, the vibraphonist. And that was actually, I believe his last performance. We played all of his tentet music and then he fell ill and just passed away recently. But, uh, that was a great collaboration. Um, we had Gratian Moncur III. Uh, we did some music that Mark Masters had arranged for an album they did several years ago, so we got to work with him. Uh, Freddie Red came down with the Chris Byers Octet from New York. We had Andrew Cyril and a new project by Mark Masters that uh, was a big band setting of Andrew's music. So that was a really exciting uh, chance to work with him. And then, uh, you know, more more recently, Joe Chambers' Moving Pictures Orchestra. So uh, it's been really cool for the the DC musicians to get a t- and the audience to get a taste of New York and also this unique collaboration that they wouldn't find anywhere else. That's an amazing list of performers and I, I wonder when you're booking something like that are you how confident are you uh and I don't mean to slight these performers in any way but how confident are you that people are still going to know who they are and they're going their names are going to resonate in the jazz the jazz going community. Well, I don't consider that. Um uh, I mean, I, I do it in some respect, but you know, the idea that these musicians uh, contributed to the the uh, artistic movement of the music in its heyday, 
uh, and that they're still viable and, and still creating. And uh, sometimes it's almost like a reintroduction. You know, I, I, I sort of rediscovered Freddie Red on the West Coast a couple of years ago and flew him out to D.C. And, uh, and to New York, and it was a huge reception. You know, people thought he was gone. He hadn't played a gig in over two years. And uh, he had a warm reception at Smalls. And uh, so I was thinking about that and saying it's not only, you know, mainstream artists, but uh, people that have maybe kind of fallen off the radar, but they're still working and are still, uh, you know, wanting to play, and, and they should be playing. So a lot of that has to do with uh, what I do is finding, like, like Teddy Charles, who Chris Byers worked really hard to, to get back on the scene and resurrect the Tentet. You know, he hadn't worked in a couple of years. He hadn't played in D.C. in several years, and I loved that music so much that I thought, why not... Uh, you know, have him come down and give people the opportunity to hear him or just say, hey, oh, he's still around. That's great. And just knowing the the very little bit I know about your own tastes in music and then hearing you talk about the list of people that you booked, it sounds like you a bit of a kid in the candy store kind of thing. Uh, definitely. But but all this uh, repertory work that I've done or or mining, you know, uh, jazz legends and working with them is, is really been for my, uh, well, it sounds selfish, but for my own education, you know, kind of a, a way of discovering what I like and, and my and my own taste and what my own music is. So, yeah, it's, it kind of leans towards uh, chamber music or or the cool movement or third stream or avant-garde, but, you know, something a little little left of center. Uh, is and, and some thoughtful, you know, uh, just beautiful music. I want to dig into your own music in just a moment, but um, can you say a few words about the the DC jazz scene? What it's like here, uh, both as a performer and presenter. And um, DC is, uh, in in the time that I've been here, I feel like it's it's second to uh, to New York. It's very vibrant. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of opportunities to play between the uh, the clubs like Bohemian Caverns, and uh, you've got a lot of. Uh, museums and um, art centers like the Atlas, like the Smithsonian, like Strathmore and Bethesda that uh, you know gives everyone an opportunity to present something that they're uh, excited about. So um, plus all the musicians that come, you know, grew up here, you know, starting with Duke Ellington, you know, Charlie Rouse and, and Butch Warren and those guys and, uh, you know, keeping a homegrown talent like Brian Settles or, or uh, 
you know, Lawrence Wheatley, guys that were, you know, really on the scene uh, for a while and really contributing their voice. So I think, uh, especially in the last couple of years with uh, with Capital Bop uh, starting and with uh, just more, uh, I think, more thirst for, for new sounds, I think DC musicians are, are branching out. And uh, they're they're creating their own uh, their own voice. Not to say that they weren't before, but I just I think it's it's more visible now. Audiences can find it. Uh, Internet age helps. You know the city paper, uh, DCist, Capital Bop, and then uh, you know a lot of visible programming. Whenever I talk to musicians from Europe or from Canada, one of the things that always comes up sometime in the conversation because they really can't help it is talking about how the government supported whatever project it is they're working on. And here you're in Washington, D.C., which is the seat of our national government, and I wonder whether there are programs that help kind of widen the jazz audience that that the government supports in some way. Well, in some ways, uh, the Smithsonian has a series every month called the Take 5 series, not any relation to the University of Maryland series, but uh, and they present local jazz groups on uh, the third Thursday of the month that's, you know, it's a paid gig, and uh, you know you get a lot of support and a built-in audience. Um, Library of Congress has uh, a series of uh, all kinds of music that they they offer free to the public. So there's a lot of um, you know chances to to perform and to see music, um, I guess, on the government dime. But and there's also some grants available. The D.C. Commission for Arts and Humanities they have uh, you know grants available on the individual level or organizational level every year. And, uh, you know, but I feel like mostly it's, it's, it's privately funded by the artist or, or, you know, by the club, uh, club covers or, you know, a different little series that pop up. You are primarily working in the tradition of people who've come before you that are not the ones who mostly inspire young saxophonists these days. Uh, you know, everyone on the scene talks about, you know, for, for many years it was everyone sounds like, tries to sound like Coltrane, and then it was everyone tries to sound like Michael Brecker. Um, and you're much more in kind of that Warren Marsh, Lee Konitz school, I think it's fair no, to say, right? Definitely. Um, and, but if I'm remembering our conversation that we had the other evening when we first met, it sounded like that was the result of some sort of change or evolution or uh, kind of realization at some point in your musical life that that was the direction you wanted to go in. Uh, yeah, my my grandfather was a, a baritone saxophone player in, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, and he had actually retired from it before I was even born. But you know, discovering his baritone saxophone was when I was like six. You know, found it in a closet and wondered what it was, and you know, it, it kind of uh, put me on the path. You know, when I was ten years old, he gave me an alto. But I remember him playing tunes, teaching me songs, and he had that old sweet swing style uh, sound. And so that always stuck with me. And in my own uh, studies of music, I remember, you know, guys that were really important to me uh, in college when I first started studying music were, were you know, Ben Webster, Coleman Hawkins, Lester Young, and, uh, and Sonny Stitt, Sonny Rollins. But uh, there was always a thread of tradition and kind of a warm sound, and... Uh, that always was present in my playing, you know, listening to Dexter Gordon or, or Gene Ammons, and uh, which is weird because I was primarily a baritone and alto player. Uh, but Sonny Stitt was my model, but I realized the, the limitations of that. And as a baritone player, Jerry Mulligan was the only one I'd been really introduced to. Uh, but I was listening to guys like that, Paul Gonzalez. Anyway, uh, as I continued my education and studied with Barry Harris for many years, and realized that I was never going to play bebop as well as, you know, Charlie Parker or Sonny Stitt, uh, but that I had those tendencies. And then being in D.C., where a lot of the players modeled themselves after Michael Brecker or John Coltrane, it, you know, I 
it never felt real to me, uh, just personally, and nothing against it, but it didn't feel real to me. And then uh, I I met Lee Konitz, and uh, I was actually already doing some of his music, uh, his and Warren's music, and I'd studied with a piano player in North Carolina named Ed Palantonio, who had hipped me to the Tristano method and had me singing Charlie Christian solos and, and playing all the chords on saxophone, you know, not, not studying piano. But uh, so upon graduating from, from Maryland, I really uh, well st- started studying with Lee Konitz, and uh, really embraced that Lester Young side of my uh, playing, and uh, and Warren Marsh was a revelation, and Ted Brown, and and of course Lee. So for people who uh, have no idea what the difference in all of those names that we both just mentioned are, I didn't really set it up very well to talk about stylistically how those people differ, how the, maybe those, those camps or those kind of ways of approaching the saxophone differ. So maybe you can help us out a little and talk about that. Well, I guess the first thing that uh, you know, strikes me is, is the, the warm sound of, of the tone. You know, it's, it, it, Lester Young, I guess, you know, is the first model for that lighter sound and... Uh, just kind of a slow vibrato, uh, but not not so much the tone that attracts me, but it's the relaxed nature of playing. You know, it's it's being in total control of what you're doing and and trying to develop an organic uh, improvised solo, not relying on any kind of stock licks or phrasing or uh, uh, you know, not a kind of a plug and chug attitude, but really living in the moment. You know, uh, with the players that are around you. So. That's what really, I mean, Lee Konitz is probably the, for me, the greatest living improviser because he can just take any situation and, and sound like himself and react and interact with what's going on. So, you know, I still work with standard forms and I like to play free, but trying to just really develop a line, uh, based on what's happening and based on just knowing what a strong melody sounds like. Ted Brown is another guy that we just had here, and, and he's uh, coming out of the Lester and Charlie Parker tradition, and he starts from scratch every time he goes to improvise. So it's never uh, never prepared, never cliche, and, and never uh, putting the uh, showmanship above the musicality. I remember the first people who ever hit me as really playing that way. Uh, I mean, the first people I encountered, obviously not the first, but I remember listening to all those old uh, Jerry Mulligan, Chip Baker quartet recordings, mm-hmm. And the thing that always struck me about listening to their solos was that it was never the same solo twice, even on alternate takes of the same tune. And it always, it, it always did exactly what you're talking about. It always felt to me like if you didn't know the melody of the piece, it could just as easily all be composed. I mean, it just seemed like it completely organically flowed out of 
the written part that had gone before. I just remember thinking, well, I don't really think of other people who play that way all that much before I knew anybody else. Right. Well, and then, you know, my earliest uh, kind of investigations of music uh, was the birth of the Cool Ensemble, and I did that at the University of Maryland as, as an ensemble I directed. And I really uh, was you know, taken by, well, I got a chance to sit in and play the baritone saxophone, play Jerry Mulligan's part. But really what was great was that, you know, the point of it was you don't know when the improvisation starts and the writing stops or vice versa. So trying to create an improvised line that's melodic and kind of, you know, composed, uh, that's really attractive to me. And I was lucky enough to, to encounter a young alto player, uh, Sarah Hughes, that that had that kind of uh, compositional quality you were playing and also the fact that she, uh, you know, had a, a more of a classical sound as opposed to a, a jazz sound. So the the Conant's Marsh connection uh, was a was a great model for us, and the improvised counterpoint, the the idea of composing uh, two melodies at once, I, I, it, it led us to collective improvisation. So, uh, a lot of things that we do are, are modeled after that uh, that idea of trying to be uh, just uh, more than just playing lines. Kind of like Lester Young would play a thirty-two bar chorus, not a not eight bars, eight bars, eight bars, eight bars, but to tell a story over the course of a solo and not think of it as uh, section by section or, or chorus by chorus. But you had to go back to Lester Young to see that, right? I mean, you told me initially he was not really your thing. I, I wasn't into Lester at all. Listening to Coleman Hawkins and Ben Webster, I thought that's how the tenor should sound. I was really into vertical improvisation. I, I knew a lot about chords. Say what that means. Oh, well, I, I knew a lot about... Uh, Stacking uh, chords or playing, uh, playing, sounding the chords as they went along, not really thinking melodically, more, more or less, uh, uh, you know, like a sawtooth pattern going through the kind of uh, arpeggiating, arpeggiating all, of the, course, all right? of the, uh, all of the chord tones and extensions. And to me, Lester sounded, you know, a little too chill for me. But, but as I got older and you know, talking to Lee and and those guys, uh, I realized that Lester really was the hippest and and to see how cool jazz came out of Lester, how bebop came out of Lester and even some free jazz. You know, they some people say that Lester was the first um well, harmonic improviser, you know, to quote Ornette Coleman, but <laughs> the fact that his melody uh often, you know, veered from the harmony, but he created new harmony in the process.
So once you decided that this was the the sound or the the sphere of jazz in which you wanted to move, I wonder what impact on a on a practical level on your career that had because it's kind of going against the grain in in some sense. Um, it it does. I I don't play in wedding bands or or Latin bands. I don't have that sound, and I never did. And it's kind of the uh, the beauty of self awareness that um, I'm not right for that. And when people call me for those kinds of gigs, I respectfully decline because I wouldn't be right for that music just like that music wouldn't be right for me. So, um, but I guess I'm kind of a self-motivated musician anyway, and I I don't wait for the phone to ring. I'd rather just create the situations that I want to play play in. Uh, So, yeah, I I do go against the grain a little bit, and it's it's not the popular music. I don't... uh, you know, I'm not going to excite anyone uh, with with uh, pyrotechnics or technical prowess or um, you know extreme uh, range or something. But uh, but for me, it's just a, a real explore- exploration of what I like to do. You mentioned uh, Ted Brown coming in recently. Mm-hmm. Will you talk more about what that event was and then the experience of of playing with Ted? Oh well, uh, I met Ted back in 2009. I was doing a hundred trib- birthday tribute to Lester Young at Smalls, and I wanted to do new arrangements of Lester's tunes or Lester's solos and Ted was a was a natural choice for that so I had Ted and a young uh, tenor player from Russia named Lena Block and Chris Byers and we all played um, harmonized Lester Young solos and other arrangements and uh, so I kind st- of a much more laid-back super sax exactly <laughs> they were actually arranged some of the arrangements were by Bill Holman and, okay uh, that's great and the alto player that I mentioned earlier Sarah she ended up playing uh, doubling lead with Ted just to give it more presence because it was a little heavy with three tenors and a baritone sure um, but so after that I I called Ted up and we started working in a quartet form format in New York uh, with Taro Akimoto on drums and Murray Wall on bass who I knew Murray from Barry Harris's class but uh, they were Warren Marsh's rhythm section uh, back in, I guess, in the late 70s, early 80s uh, when he was around New York. And so that was a dream come true to stand beside Ted uh, and play with Taro and Murray and play those lines. And uh, so I, I knew I wanted to have Ted down uh, during the DC Jazz Festival, and I knew I wanted to record with him. So we, we had him down. We did a night in Baltimore uh, in a septet format. Uh, and then we, uh, did a clinic, uh, master class at the Atlas on Lester Young, Charlie Parker, and the Tristano School. And then we, uh, recorded, uh, the next day, uh, an album that we'll have for release. I know you have natural tendencies toward education, which is why I don't feel so bad asking you to talk about all these things that I need to find. But will you tell folks who might not know, uh, about Warren Marsh and maybe mention the Tristano School too, because I think without that, Warren's harder to understand. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, Warren Marsh was uh, part of the first class of uh, Tristano students, along with Lee and Ted Brown, uh, Billy Bauer, and Sal Mosca. Uh, that he uh, he was a very organic improviser. You know, he uh, he was a vertical improviser as compared to to Lee and and Ted. He was dealing with chords and the upper extensions of them, but he was. Uh, he was largely uh, unknown in, in his lifetime and, and even now, but he was a brilliant improviser and he was committed to the music uh, right out of the tradition of Lester Young and Charlie Parker as well. He was actually a founding member of Super Sax, um, the five saxes that play harmonized Charlie Parker solos. Um, but he, uh, you know, he had a very controlled sound. Uh, he had a, 
amazing command of the horn. Um, and there was, you know, Lee Konitz often says that he was, you know, the greatest improviser. You know, he'd never heard someone improvise that way. But his influence, you know, was largely uh, unknown until Mark Turner came on the scene, you know, in the early 90s and professed that that was part of his uh, his studies as, along with Coltrane. But, uh, but Marsh was... Uh, I don't know, just if I think of organic improvisation, creating from scratch, even though he had his little uh, devices that he could manipulate better than than most people, uh, I think of Warren Marsh. And can you say something about the Tristano School? And well, uh, you know, I, I, we all say school, but I, I, mean, I guess for a time it was a school. But uh, the Tristano School was uh, under the blind pianist Lenny Tristano, and he, uh, he was one of the first to develop... Um, jazz education for jazz's sake. He developed a method of teaching jazz that was apart from classical music, which I find strange because he did teach Bach two-part inventions and teach his students to uh, play them, memorize them, and improvise in that style. But his way of uh, improvising was to study, or to teaching improvisation was to study the masters, uh, to sing their solos, to internalize it. Lester Young, Charlie Christian, Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker, Bud Powell, those guys, and really... Uh, find out what a good solo feels like and so when you go to improvise you have that uh, innate feeling for a a great line or a great melody and along with his way of uh, teaching the horn and teaching scales and uh, teaching uh, composition you know he would say write a solo uh, that you would like to play you know and so a lot of those solos or a lot of those etudes became famous lines like subconsciously or feather bed or uh, you know Dixie's Dilemma you know, back in the back in the day, as it were, uh, the old saw about the kind of cool school or Tristano playing was that it was kind of like bloodless or it was just all intellectual and, you know, not that kind of from the gut playing that I think people resonated with emotionally. Um, that's a, a view that I have never shared. But uh, I wonder for you, what what emotionally engages you in that that style of playing that kind of controlled organic style? Well, for me, it's, it's just, it, for me, it's real. And, and there's something attractive about the, the tone, the, the understated tone, um, that they are, you know, developing their lines, uh, from scratch. They're interacting as much as they can, you know, within the settings that they found themselves in. Um, I don't think it's unemotional. Um, I think it's controlled and it's, and it's not, it's not appealing maybe to the most primal, uh, feelings that, that people have. But it, but it really is. Um, it really is. Uh, it has. It has the jazz feeling to it, and it is. It is uh, infectious. You know, uh, even rhythmically. I mean, I. I still pat my foot to it like I do a, a Count Basie record. Uh, maybe I'm counting more when I hear Warren Marsh play. Uh, <laughs> but the idea for me is that it's. Uh, it's right out of the tradition. I can still hear. You know, Lester Young in their playing. I can still hear the jazz tradition. And they took the innovations and uh, uh, that Charlie Parker was known for, and they kind of developed it in their own direction. So again, it was original, and but so informed by bebop and and the uh, swing style players, and going back to Louis Armstrong. So I don't think it's unemotional. I think it's controlled, and I and I don't think it's uh, bloodless. I just think it's uh, definitely putting the music first.
You're a very active uh, band leader here in D.C., and I wonder if you could talk about uh, both the ensemble and the quartet and the other projects that you're involved in. Well, coming out of the University of Maryland, I decided I wanted to do the repertory ensemble on my own, and I loved having tuba and French horn in it and the two saxes and the two brass. I thought that was the perfect ensemble and the perfect uh, the perfect sonorities for the music I was you know, interested in investigating. So after the birth of the cool, I did a Mingus concert, uh, and then I did the Monk at Town Hall, and really, you know, just a chance to play that music, to hear it, and to study it, um, and also to you know get other people to play it and hear it, uh, just was very exciting to me. So I maintained that ensemble with the two saxes, tuba, and French horn um, as my Brad Lindy ensemble or BLE, and uh, you know we moved into commissioning new work. I just commissioned Dan Tepfer back in September to write a four movement piece for my band and, and Lee Cohn. It's kind of an updated Birth of the Cool idea. Um, and then aside from that, I started a five saxophone ensemble, not like super sax, but, um, but we do play some of the Jimmy Jufri arrangements that he did for the Conants and Warren and, uh, some Lester Young arrangements that I did and, uh, you know, original arrangements that we've done for different projects. And then, uh, in 2010, I took another step, even in this, uh, strange economy and I said, well, why don't we do a big band? And so I approached uh, Omral Brown, who's the owner and operator of Bohemian Caverns, and I'd played in a big band there before that had uh, been dark for several months. And I said, "Why don't we? Why don't we start it again? And why don't we name it after the club, and uh, and really make it an institution, have a full big band and a huge book, and make it a community endeavor?" So, what I've been working with uh, consistently every Monday night for the past over the past two years is the Bohemian Caverns Jazz Orchestra which is a 17-piece big band that plays everything from Claude Thornhill and Basie to original music that people have, you know, emailed me or mailed me or band members have brought in. And uh, I co-direct that with uh, the trumpet player in the band, Joe Herrera. And we have a community, uh, collective community spirit uh, that anybody can bring in a chart. And, uh, you know, we'll try it out. It's a workshop band like Mingus, but it's also a Monday night hang like uh, Thad Jones and Mel Lewis. That's fantastic. Uh, I know living in D.C., you have access to some primary sources when it comes to uh, music. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, the Well, the Library of Congress, um, when you take a bibliography class at the University of Maryland, you have to tour the Library of Congress to look at the, the uh, music room and the copyright deposits. And I did that, and I didn't think much about it. Uh, they have the Mingus collection there and the Ella Fitzgerald, and I never found a practical use for uh, checking it out until I met Freddie Red. Uh, and actually through a friend, Bertrand Uberall, he's a kind of a, a moonlighting researcher at the Library of Congress. He contributed the Wayne Shorter discography for the for the Michelle Mercer book. But he uh, introduced me to the real nitty-gritty of the Library of Congress, and I found Freddie Red's copyright deposits and uh, just kind of studied the scores, had permission to copy them. Copyright deposits, in uh, other words, are the things that the artist sends in. The to artist get their work sends copyright. in, right. Okay. Uh, after they record a piece to, to maintain the copyright on it, they have to send in some kind of lead sheet. And uh, it's surprising, though. They're not as accurate as you would hope they would be. You know, I think sometimes <laughs> they just throw in a sketch just to get credit for it. You know, Gigi Grice and uh, Benny Golson, they were one of the first to create booklets of music uh, for jazz composers because they could send it in as like a you know, five or six compositions together. It was cheaper. Uh, but those are those are pretty accurate. 
other people just send in some uh, the bare necessities. So a lot of the the Freddie Red deposits were you know in the wrong key, no chord changes, missed uh, you know um, incorrect notes. And so, you know, I got to go back to the recordings, but it was nice to have a guide. And since then, I've used it. Um, Franco Mulligan has given me permission to use uh, some of Jerry's stuff, which is, uh, you know, beautiful. Um, and also, most recently, the Ella Fitzgerald Charitable Foundation gave me permission to photocopy uh, and use the um, music that Ella Fitzgerald did with Count Basie and Duke Ellington for a 95th birthday celebration we did at the Smithsonian back in April. So, uh, yeah, it's a heck of a resource, and uh, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be so close to go down there and sit for hours and uh, dive into that stuff. Are there ever uh, non, non-musical non things on those scores that are interesting, little notes about what's happening, or are they are these particular versions kind of cleaned up? No, no, they're, they're exactly uh, what you would hope to find, and I think, for me, that's what's really exciting, is when I see Jerry Mulligan's part that says Zoot Sims on it, and it doesn't say, you know, Alto 2, and it says, you know, Lee Cohn, it says Al Cohn. I, I love those things. Uh, you know, all of Duke Ellington's things say, you know, Rabbit or Rab on it, or, <laughs> you know, uh, or Cootie. So, I mean, just those things, seeing the coffee spills or the, you know, the notes or the or the edits that they, they did on the record date that, you know, that you wouldn't know about unless you actually saw the parts. And even when some of these things get published through e-jazz lines or through different estates, you know, they they clean them up to the point where you know you, you lose some of the Stan Kenton's a perfect example even though some of these came from North Texas you know getting those parts is totally different than the uh, parts that are published by Sierra Music so those extra musical things the little notes on there uh, yeah those those are what I kind of live to live for to discover you told me something interesting the other evening about the Ellington arrangements and what they lack oh right ellington uh rarely uh, uh, almost never wrote piano parts or drum parts uh i went to the smithsonian to check out the nutcracker suite before it had been published and there were no drum parts and no chord changes in a lot of cases for the solos uh i think paul gonzalez and uh, jimmy hamilton and a lot of times were just playing by ear or they knew the tune and that's another kind of revelation that oh okay first of all i don't have any piano part to get the chords from you know, I mean, of course I have the recording, but then also the bass parts are written out in a lot of cases, like individual notes with, again, no chord symbols. So I don't know if that's an afterthought or if it's uh, something that they had to deal with every night. And then the, you know, bass, I'm sure the bass player would just improvise after that. Uh, and why is it that there are no piano parts and no drum parts? Well, uh, Ellington knew his part, as I'm sure Billy Strayhorn knew it as well. And then, uh, you know, Sam Woodyard or, or Sonny Greer, whoever was playing, uh, they would just learn it by ear. Or they lost all the parts. Is, it could be another <laughs> another version of uh, the history. But um, I think it was just uh, it was such a, you know, aural music and playing it every night. You know, you just learn the parts and, and forget about it.
I'm kind of forcing you because you're the, I already know you know these things, to act as a bit of a, a DC tour guide for the jazz fan here. And if someone comes here, in addition to the actual music being made now that they can see, and of course these collections that they could make an appointment to see, there are also some cool like instrumental holdings at the various libraries and museums, right? Things you can see that are right. one of a kind. Well, the, the one that, that comes to mind is they have Jerry Mulligan's uh, baritone saxophone in a, in a display at the Library of Congress right outside the music room. They have his Grammy that he won for the... Uh, What's it called? Wade in the Water or the Water is Wide? I should know the title of that. How about Wade? We'll just call it Wade in the Wide Water. <laughs> yeah, okay, there you <laughs> okay, go. That's, we've my just apologies. My apologies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and actually, the guy that plays lead trumpet with us on Monday nights is on that album. With no His kidding. name's Mike uh, Davis. We call him Bags. But he's uh, he was on that album with Barry Rees and Tom Harrell, and he was a part of that band when uh, you know they were doing all that work. Uh, he, in fact, he's also played with Mel, jo- uh, Mel Lewis uh, at the Vanguard on a Monday night. Did a whole set with him, with the Vanguard band, and so uh, he's kind of our conduit to uh, history. Um, he also was on the last two Mingus albums and uh, big band albums, and so it's very cool to hear him tell the stories and then go check out the stuff at the Library of Congress. I'm going to go down there probably this week and look to see if I can find a part that says "bags" on it, but. Um, but yeah, the the uh, the horn you can see. Um, you know, I I don't know so much about the Smithsonian collection. I believe Benny Goodman's clarinet is in there somewhere, and maybe one of Dizzy Gillespie's trumpets. I, I'm not positive about that because they've closed the exhibit for uh, a couple of months, and I was actually trying to go down there to check it out. But uh, I think you can see the original Kermit. Um, <laughs> Which is enough for me, I right? Um, if that was all they had at the Smithsonian, I would go. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, the museums are free. That's the other cool thing about D.C. is that, you know, aside from these all these music treasures, it's just there's a lot of treasures here that you can go f- check out with, with no cost. Uh, I took Lee Konitz down to the museums, and he couldn't believe he didn't have to stand in line and pay $25 to see, you know, this uh, exhibit, you know, uh, Frank Stella or whoever we were looking at. You know, he just uh, – but so that's amazing. And then there's the history of the, the clubs and, and – you know, uh, U Street is uh, incredibly historic. Bohemian Caverns, if it had stayed open and operated uh, without uh, closing down in 1968, it'd be older than the Village Vanguard. It was, it's been there since 1926. Wow. And everybody from Billie Holiday to Charles Mingus to Eric Dolphy, you know, played there. But there was a little bit of a, little bit of a break <laughs> until about 2005. Uh, I wanted to ask about meeting all of you've now you've met and worked with a lot of these kind of legendary figures in the music and what what effect does that have when you then go back and listen to the albums that you first knew them from and now you've actually met them as human beings and heard them tell stories of the road and that kind of thing oh wow um it it really does change everything you know you can listen to a record and you can love the music and and Freddie Red's a perfect example. His Connection soundtrack was the happiest music I'd you know ever heard, and so uh, just joyously executed and written. I, I always wondered, you know, in a in a play and movie about heroin, um, how this music could be so ex- exciting and uh, and joyous. And then I met Freddie, and Freddie is is just like the music. He's very sincere. He's a very upbeat guy, um, and and his playing is just like he writes. So. Now every time I listen to a Freddie Red, you know, record, I can I can really kind of get inside the experience and, and know the look on his face when he's comping through, you know, Time to Smile or, or Music Forever. And uh, it really changes it. It gives you a personal connection and kind of a window into that time. And 
I, he told me stories about living off Christopher Street in the same building as Charlie Parker and things like that. So I can really kind of see the uh, inspiration for, for the music. Same thing with Gratian, you know, uh, you can read the liner notes, you can listen to the music, but, you know, when he's telling you that, you know, Air Raid was about you know, them pulling the shades, you know, in the, in the 50s, when you were worried about something, you know, happening, uh, late 40s. And then uh, same thing for, Evo uh, what's it called, exploration, you know, being a moonwalk, you know, having him explain it to you, that it's supposed to sound like you're walking in space, you know, that uh, really changes the way you, you play the written page or listen to it. I believe, if I've done the math right, that as folks are listening to this, today is the 21st of June, 2012. So are there some upcoming shows that you'd like to mention? Uh, summer's kind of light for me, um, but by design. Um, the big band's going to continue to work uh, on Monday nights, every Monday night at the Caverns. And uh, we're also going to be branching out and doing some swing dances to you know, get back to the roots of it. I, I feel like we need to play for dancers again uh, to kind of really... Uh, work on our swing feel and, uh, you know, tempos and, and that relaxed, uh, attitude. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, but upcoming projects, um, I'd like to record with Ted Brown again and do another, uh, CD release, uh, performance and recording. And then also, uh, in July and August, uh, on Tuesday nights at Andy Music, uh, in Baltimore, I'm gonna be in residence with Freddie Red, um, doing, Kind of a Freddie Red and Friends jam session. Um, give uh, give the younger generation a chance to to play and to feel what you know what really great comping feels like underneath. <laughs> it. So that's that's the immediate future. I'm also planning on recording my my quartet with Sarah Hughes and Tom Baldwin and Tony Martucci. So uh, with all of our original music. And when does the new Atlas season start? Oh, the new Atlas season. Um, We'll start in September, and uh, very excited about this year's lineup. I've got it booked all the way through through May. So we'll have uh, Steve Coleman's quartet. going to open up, and we're going to follow it uh, with uh, Gary Smullyan and a new project that Mark Masters has designed for him where he plays the Ellington sax section. So it's uh, five saxes in rhythm, but uh, music by Ellington's saxophone players. 
So uh, that'll be a CD release for that project, too, that Mark recorded on the West Coast. And then we have Mary Halverson's quintet and Joel Harrison's string choir playing Paul Motion's music. And we have uh, the Washington Women in Jazz Festival with Jerry Allen in the spring. Uh, I know I'm forgetting a, a bunch of stuff. Ben Williams and sound effect. Um, I don't know. I, I get so excited about all this great music. It's, it's hard to keep it all keep it all straight where do folks go online to find the atlas schedule? you can go to www.atlasarts.org and you can see the whole season and buy tickets and uh enjoy some very uh interesting music that you probably won't see anywhere else in washington dc and if folks go to the show notes for this show there are links to uh, brad's site so you can check out his calendar and just uh, remind us again about the times for the monday night big band at bohemian caverns. sure the bohemian caverns jazz orchestra plays every monday night uh, from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. on uh, U and 11th Street. It's right off the Metro Green Line and uh, covers only $10. It's open to all ages and uh, we'll be there every Monday. My guest is Brad Lindy. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, man. It seems like uh, you're building a great life for yourself in the music here in D.C. and I'm glad you shared some of it with us. I'm very lucky and thank you for having That's music from Brad Lindy from Washington, D.C. My thanks to Brad for his help when I was in D.C. And my thanks to you for listening. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. You can go to thejazzsession.com slash tour to find out how to support my tour. There are several ways to do it. You can become a member of the show, which means a, a recurring payment, either monthly or yearly. You can make a one-time donation to the tour and get the thank you gifts that result from that. You can also buy a book for my Kindle, which is a fairly easy way to, to hop into supporting the tour and gives me something to read. 
Don't forget to get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And then come back here next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.